This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Sefarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. It also has an interesting uh, coincidence when it comes out always. Um, it always comes out in Pashas Mishpatim. You know, it's the week of Pashas Mishpatim. It's, um, Rabbi Sol Salanta is extraordinary for many reasons. First of all, um, he left over very little of his own writings, and a lot of what he did was sort of hidden, but a lot of what we have today is from him. He was basically the Galador for long Kufa, and it's important to understand a little bit the context of what was going on. It's also a little difficult to try to pin down one Nekudah of Eschidosh, because there was a lot that, everybody knows he was started the Muslim movement, but it was a lot bigger than that. And to try to get sort of a sense of how it ties in together is not easy. First, a word about what the sources are. We spoke last time that you always have to suspect biographies, to suspect biographies as what, where they come from, and it's nice that we can tell stories, but stories need to come from someplace. Um, so, let's map out at least what I think the Makoros that are reliable. First of all, he lived between 1810 to 1883. Oh, and we have the following. We have a little bit from his big Talmud of Yitzhak Blazer. Yitzhak Blazer was his biggest Talmud, and he wrote, he put out the Or Yisrael, which includes a, a, a few a few items that he spoke to Rabbi Salamta, that he wrote, letters that he wrote, and a rough sketch of some of his dark avoda and so on, with a few bits and pieces. That's one source that's obviously impeccable. And there's a Sefer Kedosh Yisrael that was put out after his Ptira, which has Likutim from, I think, his grandson, a few others, all sorts of Anhogis and Verta, Nice, and stuff like that. There is a fascinating book from somebody named Yaakov Mark. Yaakov Mark was, I would I would call him, today he would be considered centrist, I guess, for the lack of a better word, a from modern person. He's a fascinating person. Um, he would write columns in a newspaper in the States, but he lived in a city called Flunigan in Latvia, Kurland, which was sort of Germany, Latvia, and it was a, a, a resort area where a lot of Hasha people would go for vacation, or if, or if they needed, in those days it was more to drink water. They, they used to bathe in the sea and drink the, the there was like those, uh, those mineral waters and stuff like that. And he lived there, and he got to know quite a few Gdolim. And he wrote a book in Yiddish and then translated into Hebrew. I don't know if I ever made it to English. It's Gedolius all that um, that I knew. Um, it's print. It was in Hebrew also. I have it. It's um, fascinating. He, he writes personal mices. He writes the mices, and they are extremely. Um, they're very fresh and candid, and very insightful. <coughs> and he has quite a bit of Sosalanta, who we've met many, many times. Sosalanta was there in the town, so that's a very good source. The best source is. So he was, this was written about in the 20s. So if the book was in 1920 and he knew him personally, um, 
even let's say 40, 50 years before. So that those are personal stories. Finally, the best source is there's a safer. I think it's probably translated in English. Five volumes called Tnuah Samusa by Reb Dov Katz. Reb Dov Katz was a Slavotka Balmusser, very very special person. And he put out. He started his work Tnuah Samusa, and the first volume was written before World War II. So that means he's writing the late 30s about Reb Salanta, who lived 50 years before, and he knew people who knew him. He himself didn't know him. He was he couldn't have known him, but he knew people who knew him. And best of all, and he did a lot of research from newspapers and, and things that have been printed. He brings Makoros <coughs> for everything that he says he has in Makoros. He was a person with a very... The mile of Rabdov Katz is he understood Musa. He was from the world of Musa. He was a Slavodka Talmud. He um, w- looked through... He didn't rely on stories. He went through material, written documented material. And most of all, he has a skama on the Sefer from uh, Rabbi Sol Salanta's great-grandson, who's Rev Desla. Rev Desla was a great-grandson of Rabbi Sol Salanta. Um, his mother was a Grudensky, who was a granddaughter of Rabbi Sol Salanta. And Rev Desla writes in it that it's a tremendous work. He was, was unsolicited. He got it from him, and he writes back that I read it from cover to cover. I bought, as soon as I saw it, I bought it, I read it, and it's extraordinary. He said, I have horror that there's one chapter about Rabbi Saul Salanta's um, interaction with, um, with Lemurichol that I think might give people room to make a mistake and should have maybe rearranged a little bit, whatever it was. That's his only horror, but everything else is very much up there. So that, that's a very, very powerful askama from Desla who was a great-grandson and was one of the leading lights of the Muslim movement himself. So those are, the, so those are my sources. Um, he himself basically subsumes all the sources. The, the, the Muslim absorbs all the other sources. Kemat doesn't leave anything out. Um, it's a, and he also wrote a book that was printed only once. It's called Pulmas Musa about the Rabbanin that were against the Muslim movement. And he, he brings all the material and the reasons and a very, very well-written, um, even-handed type of account. And it was printed once in, in the 70s in Hebrew. So let's go to Rabbi Sosa. Let's, and let's, I, let's first look at the Tukufa and understand a little bit about it. European a Jewry in Europe was from, like everybody, like the Goyim Lahabdul, the 1600s. In the 1700s, the Goyim started... Um, their faith started sort of uh, wavering, and they started becoming the age of reason, and so on and so forth. And the Jews in Germany followed along, and the movement that was called Haskala started in Germany in the mid-1700s. It, it, it included um, a gentle reform, uh, a gentle Haskala, and then a very powerful and a reform movement. And by the time the mid-1800s had come around, was gone. German Jewry was not from, period. And Shabbat Shalom was able to, to create a, a renaissance, but it really was destroyed. And in, in, in within a period of a, of a door, it was gone. Uh, the Ascola and then Reform, which was a branch of Ascola, destroyed it utterly. East Europe started shaking in the 1800s. It started in Galicia, because they were under the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and the Frank Joseph was a decent person, and 
he started, he, he um, made some takanas about schools and so on and so forth, and it started spreading across Lithuania, Russia, Poland. And the movement really gained traction, especially in Lithuania. Now, let's understand how Rabbi Sroll saw the Mats of Lithuanian Jewry in that kufa. They were there were a lot of Stam people who were brought up very tough. The old Derech Achinach was strong, and you went to Cheder, and the Rebbe beat your Shemaim into you, and whatever little you knew how to learn, it beat into you. And it was very clear this is the way it has to be. Authority, communities were strong, Rabbanu were the authority, and that's the way it went. Yeshivas didn't exist except for Velazhin. So Bacha was bright. His Malamid would send him off to a Chashvarov to learn. He would sit and learn. He would chaza chulim, and he would chaza this, and he would know Mesechtas and Paiskim. And his, and his personality was also authority. This is the way it is. This way it has to be. And that's it. The Musa, in any sense, was for common folk. Uh, a Magid who was not considered to be in great, uh, Magid who was not considered to be in great distinction, would go from town to town and they would say drushes, some were funny, some were sharp, some described Gehenim, some this and that. And anybody who was a little bit learned didn't attend those drushes, wasn't, you know, was kind of common folk entertainment and Yerushalayim. And that was it. And, and that was the way things were. That had very little chance. Of withstanding the onslaught of um, Haskalah. First of all, anyone who was bright and intelligent and was exposed to reading things that were that had depth and uh, intelligence, whereas his learning was chasming over Chulin uh, so they could put a pin through it and see what it, which places is where, wasn't getting him anywhere. When someone came along and exposed him to ideas, to noble, beautiful ideas in, in, in the world thought and literature and so on. Le'umas what? Le'umas a magid with some stupid drasha. So anybody who had a little bit of sensitivity fell for it. And authority was no longer so important because Jews began going to university, began to move out of Shtetlach, into the cities, and it was going to fall apart. Reb Zol Salamta was born in 1810. He was born in a small shtetl near Kovna called Zagar. His father was a Chashavi. His father was a Malamid, later became a Rav of Tells. He was brilliant. Brilliant, that was the first characteristic. At the age of 10, he was saying a pilpul in front of a base medrash, literally. At the age, his father sent him to the local Rav to learn to appear, to Salant. His father wasn't happy with his pilpulim, and he sent him at the age of 12, to learn by Svi Breuder, the Rav of Salant. That's why he's known as Salant, that's where he spent most of his time. At the age of 14, he wrote a contrast to Rabbi Kivega. Rabbi Kivega never answered him on it. Somebody from town visited Rabbi Kivega, and Kivega said, you know, you're, you're from Salant? A 14-year-old boy sent me a contrast that is goinus Atsuma. It's awesome. I've never seen anything like it. And it, tell me a little about him. So he said, 
you know, and so Rick Vega explained, he said, I never replied to him, because I said to myself, he lives in Salant, the Rav over there is a big guy in the Brady. Why is he writing to me? I guess he must be in a fight with the Rav, and he wants to hear from me compliments to use against the Rav. I didn't want to do it. That's, that's, that's what Rick Vega held of him. It was extraordinary. He got married at 14. Those days was not uncommon to get married at that age, 14, 15. He got married at 14, and he stayed in Salant for 18 years. And he sat and learned, basically. His first, um, his first job opening came um, when Parnassus became difficult, and he had a position in Vilna. And in 1840 or so, Vilna took him, somebody in Vilna took him to be a, a, a Ram in his yeshiva. Now, while he was in Salant, he learned, but one of the people in that Bismedish that he was learning, his name was Abyezif Zundel Salant, he was a town of Chaim Velazhin. He was a big tzaddik and a big kaddish, has Onan Haggis. And he saw Salant noticed him. And he began to look and follow him and get a sense of what's going on. Like something strange. This person has all sorts of tzitkistika and hagis. And Rabbi Zundel um, noticed it. And he turned around and he said, Yisrael, learn Musa and you'll be a Reishamayim. And he said those words changed his life. Those five words changed his life. And he began to get involved in Musa and learning. And finally... He got his first stella was a Vilna. He was 30 years old in 1840, and he became a Magid in Vilna, Reb Milas, a famous yeshiva. In after a year or two, he noticed that the other Rosh yeshiva had tremendous Das because the Bachram liked him. He was brilliant. His his pulpulim were extraordinary, and he was a phenomenal speaker. He felt bad, and he left, and he made his own. He made his own yeshiva somewhere in Vilna, and he was in Vilna. He once he became famous, and once people looked after him as a goyim, he he began doing what he really wanted to do, and that is to create a movement dedicated to Yerushalayim. He felt. And again, this is a little bit reading in because he left over very little, he left over very, very little um, memoirs, writings, and even drushes and stuff. He left over very little. But his feeling was, but you see it in the way he, in the letters that he writes, that the Yerushalayim that existed in Europe and lit at the time is just, it, it's just kind of, you were, it, was, it was sort of inculcated and, you, and it had no chiyas. It had no life, no passion, no depth to it. And he began forming groups, Musa groups, and, and speaking very, very powerful <coughs> Musa rushes. And basically, what are the things that he was, in other words, what were his main points? So, his two main points were that unless a person becomes passionate about Yiddishkeit, it will dry up and die. And he's not going to be a good person. Even if he won't die, even if he'll always be from, it's going to be a shell. And the only way to change that 
is to emotionally make an upheaval as needed constantly. And to that end, he introduced the following. A, there should be a special place to learn Musa. He called these places Beis Musas. They would be off the Beis Medrash. They would be darker. There would be only Musas farm there. And everybody would sit himself, not Chavrusa, and take, and that would, so the first thing is the setting, the Beis Musa. Two, he said, until you don't get impassioned about something, it doesn't have its effect. So, to take a Maimar Chazal or a Pasik that strikes you, or that deals with a mid or something that you're dealing with, and you chazer it again and again and again and again, a half hour, 40 minutes, un- until, until it explodes inside of you. And that has a profound effect on you. That's the second point. The third point, or just the first two were part of how to learn Musa, he called that Sfasayim Dolkos, meaning you sing it, and that was the classic Musa was, that sing-song, and you could sit a half hour, 40 minutes with the same Maimar Hazal. Someone described to me, Ramon Shapiro described to me, when um, Desla was in Panovich, he said he remembers there was a um, it was a second day Rosh Hashanah, long two days Rosh Hashanah, and it was Mincha time, the second day Rosh Hashanah, after Mincha, and people started breathing a little easier. The the the, the atmosphere was very heavy in in in, in Rosh Hashanah Panovich, and it was very focused, and very concentrated, and. He said, you know, and people started to take a deeper breath. They're like, okay, it's, it's, it's after Mincha Rosh Hashanah secondary. And Abdesta came in, didn't say anything. He sat in a corner and began, took out Maimah uh, Chazal, um, and he began sing-songing to himself. That Yehudim know that their, that their path leads to Gehenim, but Libam Barikulam, but their heart are very, very thick. They did not misfall. And he said, he sat sort of into himself and began learning it. And he said, you could feel the ripple effect. And, and then and then, the people in front of him just took out a Musa Sefer. And, and, and he said, by the time Meyer came around, the whole the whole base Medrash was learning Musa. And he, and he said, you know, it just radiated out from him. That was the type of effect he wanted it to have. And the second part was that Musa requires Chachma because unless a person understands himself, then he doesn't know what he's doing. A person thinks he's doing Chesed. He's running around doing Chasadim, ah, helping here, helping there, helping the other person. But really he's trying to be noticed. Really he's a busybody. He, he, he needs people to, 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 to be involved with. Uh, a person sits and learning with tremendous asmada. It's, it's not avas achachma. It's it's the desire to have people take note of him. That's that's. So here you have a person who's and so on. Unless there's chachma, unless there's an element of of um, understanding yourself and understanding how a person's inside works, it's not. The person is going no place really quickly. 
He just keeps dealing with things that are better, not him. And that's and 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 the the chachmas of Musa is to analyze, to think into yourself, to understand yourself, and to use Chazal to get there. And that's where we'd learn up Chazal's uh, that he would understand in ways of dealing with Kolsanefesh, and that way a person would would look into himself and a person would understand himself. And that was to him very very significant. So the two elements, what Rabbi Stroll was mechadish was that no person is immune to the needs of Musa, that big people are from and doing from things and good things are not good people necessarily. They're, they're, they, they, they. He has a very powerful muscle, and he speaks a lot about the, the inside cohorts and the outside cohorts. And his muscle is very powerful. His muscle is, imagine a person has a son who's a good for nothing. And he has a Talmud <coughs> who's really, really, really mutzlach. So anybody seeing him sees him always with his Talmud smiling and saying, ah, Givaldi, good, wonderful, great. And with his son, he always looks kind of peeved and he's always upset and it's this and that. I said, okay. Now imagine in the middle of the night, a fire breaks out in his house, he wakes up choking on smoke. What does he do? He says, he runs and grabs his kid. He doesn't run and grabs his Talmud, he grabs his kid first. Why? He said, because on the outer layer of Kohos, he certainly has a better rapport with the Talmud than he has with his son. But when you look under the surface, his son is his son. He said a Maimah Chazal, extraordinary, the way he learned up a Maimah Chazal, this is, a, this is very typical. It says by Avram Avinu, I think it's a Tanchuma if I'm not mistaken. Tanchuma says that as he was being Makriv, Yitzchak, it says Enov were being Zolig Demos, his eyes were crying, and he says, and then it says, the same Chazal on the Bible says, HaKadosh Baruch was Mayed, that he was Makid him, Bishlemus. The belief shalom, I think, it says that he was that he did that kate of shalom. See, yes, I don't stand. It's a steer in bay. So he says it's not a steer, because in as far as his conscious, that was 100% like Kadosh Baruch Hu. But what's underneath, you don't have control. Your eyes cry when your son is on the mizbeach, even if your head knows it's the right thing. And that's Zekaladam. That was Rabbi Yisrael's Chidushim in the world of Musa. And he felt, and he went around from place to place. He would first get people worked up with drushes. He would then make Batimidrashim of Beisam Musas. He would have Talmidim that he especially gave time to and work with them, and then ask them to take over. And he felt that that would be the salvation of uh, of Lita, of, and, and you know that part of, of, of Europe. His his Kufa in Vilna came to an abrupt end in 1848-49. What happened was the the Tsar made a um, he wanted they, 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 they made a base medrashlor abanim in uh, in Vilna. Pesach Abanim was a, 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 the um, maskilim 
wanted to create yeshivas to produce quote-unquote Rabbanim who would lead the nation to Haskalah. And they got the government involved in doing that. And they asked Rabbi Saul to head it. Rabbi Saul Salanta was a personality that was, interestingly enough, accepted by almost everyone. The, the, the Shlomo Muna Yisrael held him in great esteem. He was a Goyen Adir, he was a Tzaddik. The Maskilim also held him in esteem because he really spoke negatively. He usually spoke very positively, respectfully. He spoke a lot about the depth of Judaism, the meaning. The Maskilim's tiny was that Judaism is rusty, it deals, doesn't deal with real issues, real people. It's just a bunch of laws about the, you know, arcane things. And the, we speak of the beauty of Judaism and the spirit of Judaism, so did Rabbi Sroll. Rabbi Sroll was dressed immaculately, even though Rabbi Sroll himself was very poor and he lived on the dime. But he was clean, neat. There wasn't a, a, a crease on anything he wore. He was immaculate. He was extremely beautiful, very, very regal. And Rabbi Sroll was also knowledgeable in new languages. He had quite a lot of other other nyanim. And anything that he felt is needed, he engaged it. They wanted him to head it. And he re- and and he said no. And then the education minister of Russia came to him to ask him to head it. Um, you don't refuse those type of offers without some risk. So he left. They asked him why are you against it? And it's very interesting. He gave different reasons to different people, none of the reasons you would expect. I mean, you know, the, the, the Hungarian Nusach would have been the Apikursim, Rishoyim, Arurim, you know, the age of Gehenim, and this and that. He gave two or three, but the one I think we expressed it the most was a letter to somebody in Kovna. Um, and he said, when a Rav sitting at home, and he's eating, and a poor man comes with a Shaila, the Ravs drops everything and sits down and tries his best to be matted the chicken for the poor man because he knows how, how desperate the person is and he needs to know Shas and Paiskim to be able to do that and he needs to have a heart that goes out for someone else. When a rich man comes, he doesn't rush, he'll wait. And worse comes to worse, if he doesn't find a head of him, look at another chicken. He said doctors is the opposite. When a poor man comes, the doctor is busy and can't see him. When a rich man comes, he runs on all four. He said, I don't know what it is, but yeshivas produce people that are sensitive to the, to the hamonam, and universities produce people that are sensitive to their own needs and covered in money. And Rabbanan need to be people sensitive to the needs of the people. Was it a diplomatic answer? Was it a wise answer? Was it part of what he felt? I, I definitely think he felt it was right. But it's, it's extraordinary. It's an extraordinary... Answer. Al Gaponim, he left and went to Kovna. Kovna was in the, was in Lithuania, was not yet part of Russia really, and he was there for also something like ten years, and he founded a yeshiva with well over a hundred talmidim, and he brought in the ruach of Musa. It was probably his most successful enterprise in that sense. He is most chash of talmidim on that kufa, and all of them. He taught the need to learn Musa daily, the need to learn Musa in an emotional, passionate way, the need to fill your Yiddishkeit with passion, the, um, the, the need 
to be respectful, to think about other people, in everything about it. And he also founded a kolo. He probably was the first one to found a kolo where people could sit have to get married and be paid money and so on. He, 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 um, he worked very hard on the dignity of Neitoro. They shouldn't go eat by people meals like what they used to. He had them arranged in a very becovetic way. He had a, a, a nice dormitory. He really, really was very important to cover that Torah. He said, if we have Yeshiva Bachim that are proud to be Yeshiva Bachim, they will have the strength and dignity to change litter. And if they will be shmatis, they won't be able to do anything. That was his shita. Part of, I think, he, he worked very much on Ben Adam Lechavero and Choshim Mishpat. Um, he said once, he doesn't understand why they teach kids Arachayim and Achayish Mishpat. He said almost all of Arachayim, except for the Shabbos, is the Rabbanans. Almost all of Choshim Mishpat is the Raisa, it's Gzela. Even if the king is Rabbanan, Gzela is the Raisa. Um, I think it was part of his overall understanding that if you don't if if you don't if, if a person's from kite is because he's bred from so chickens and asregim and lulavim and kazasim those are all part of that package but but when you have an issue with money there's no clear package and people don't do the right thing and that's why Benal Mechavero and Chayshim Mishpat became very important. What's fascinating about his yard site is it comes out always Pashas Mishpatim. This, this next week it'll be on Shabbos Pashas Mishpatim, but that's, that's one of the uh, uh, fascinating things of it. I want to say over two, three, four things about his understanding and care for Mominus, Benal Mechavero, a lot of the few famous mice, a few less famous mice. I want to say over, first of all, two mice about the only time people ever saw Bissol Salanta get and um, pretend to get angry. Pretending angry means he looked angry and he spoke furiously, but he himself said he, he would mutter to himself, Kasa Panevoli Kasa Leib. I need to project Kas, but not be Kas. Once was in Vilna in the 1840s when there was a cholera epidemic. And a famous story of Bissol Salanta got up and he made Kiddush. But he organized a hospital with 15, he rented a hospital of 1,500 beds and got doctors to work for free. He, um, he also organized like a solo of 60 to 70 um, B'nai Torah who would take the people who were sick and bring them to the hospital. Yaptun said cholera was a very dangerous epidemic and he had them and he instructed them that on Shabbos, they should do all the malachas and not let a guy do it. Because until they get the guy, until the guy does it, he, he held that they need to do it, and that's what he passed it. One of the Fruma Balbatim, one of the very stark Fruma Balbatim's grandson, a son, became sick with cholera. Immediately that solar ran and got him. Um, and they did all the malachas, they, they, they cooked the water, did everything that was needed, the way of Sol Salanta passed And the, the kid pulled through. A week or two later, he came to Rabbi Sol Salanta, this person, and he thanked him. He said, but you know what? I, I think you were a little bit exaggerated in how much Chil Shabbos you allowed them to do. And Rabbi Sol Salanta told him, you pushtak, you prostak, you're good for nothing. He said, you know nothing. Who do you think you are? He said, 
I took 60 to 70 B'nai Torah on my response, and not one of them ever got sick. Can you do that? And you, 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 you don't have a day in this. He said it because he needed, he was afraid that if people would start arguing about it, they would start being this rational, and he held his Pekoch Nefesh. That's why he made Kiddush and, on the Bima and so on. He, 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 he said, it's a mitzvah, the same Rebbe Nisholem that told you to, to keep Shabbos, to Bechal Shabbos. If you're doing what's right, then what's the Peshat? It's Chil Shabbos, so we have to be a little bit... That was once when he got angry. There's a second story. The second story is an extraordinary story. There was a terrible, terrible example. One of the darkest chapters in Jewish history was called the Cantonist Gezerah. The same Tsar Nicholas, may, may he rot together with his grandchildren and great-grandchildren in Russia, the, um, was a Sunni Yisrael, Muvak. And he was Goiza the following, that every community has to provide soldiers for the Tsar. Soldiers for the Tsar was from the age 12 till the age of 40, I think 25 years, they had to serve made 15, they had to serve the Tsar. If they were grabbed earlier, the 25 years only started at like at the age of 15. Um, to take kids, to force them to the army, the, the mortality rate was terrible. They were, they were basically very few were left from. If they were left from, they came back at the age of 40, nobody wanted to look at them. They were coarse Russian soldiers who barely knew Ivra. Very, very, very horrible. And what was horrible about it was, they allowed and instructed the Jewish communities to give the kids that they felt. We don't care who you give. We need five kids from this community. And they would pick the kids. The kids would usually be the poor kids, the unfortunate kids. It was a terrible, terrible tkufa. It, it pitted Jew against Jew in a horrible way. It, it, it's, it's, it's an unbelievably difficult and black chapter in, in Kaisal's history. Um, <laughs> At any rate, this Xerah started in about 1827, lasted for about 30 years. There was a woman in Salant. There was a woman in Salant, they also had to produce kids. And a woman came, there was a woman in Almana came with a young boy. She obviously was, was at the fringe of society. She would make a living, she would play accordion with a kid dancing around. And a kid, and a kid would collect the coins that people, that, that people threw, and that's, that's how she supported herself. So they said, Givaldic, they, 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 the community registered the kid as living there, and they grabbed the kid and took him to the, to the whatchamacallit, to, for the, to give up the army. This woman went out of her mind. She, she, she you know, and she, 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 she went crazy, she went berserk, <coughs> and went around crying and screaming and yelling. <coughs> Rabbi Salanta arrived, and she, she heard a Hashem person came, she came to him, and she sat sobbing, telling him the story. And Rishol Salanta said, okay. He said, don't worry, after Shabbos it will be okay. Shabbos, he, he invited, they, they, they made a big Kiddush in the shul, Nachbarim came, Rabbi Yisrael was there, they made Kiddush. And then Rabbi Yisrael turns to the first person and says, Rabbi so-and-so, you're a big tzaddik, right? You don't use the Erev, you wear, sh- you wear your, 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 your handkerchief like a shawl, you don't use the Erev. And what about Goinev Nefesh Umecharoi? You. You're you're you down from a sitter and this and that, yeah. And what about Ritzicha? And you, and every single one. He said, it's also to live this community. 
and he ran out of the city. And uh, it, it was people, I mean, they were devastated. They, they, they knew they had no choice, they had to give the kid back, but they didn't have the guts to go to Bisrol to, to try to fire him. They had, there was one person there who was a Talmud Chavar Bisrol, very famous person in his own right, Rebbe Elie Katinga. He was a tremendous person. He was a person of wealthy businessmen, Sadiq Otsum, a big Talmud Chacham. They sent him to Rabbi Sorol. He came to Rabbi Sorol and he gave Rabbi Sorol Musa. And he said, he said, it says by Rabbi that when he came out of the Myra and he looked around the world, he, he, everything started burning up because he had criticism for everything. And the Gemara says, that a, a voice came in the Shemayim, you know, have you, are you coming to burn up the city? You know, go back into your Myra. So he told Rabbi Sol, Rabbi Sol, these people did wrong, but it's a xera, that's a terrible xera. You can't destroy uh, the town because of it. And, it was, and he told Rabbi Sol they gave the kid back, and it was this pious. But those, those are two of the stories of his extraordinary... There's another story that I'd like to share about Rabbi Sol Salanta's breath of um, understanding people, understanding their needs. This is written in a, in a memoir of a Yidra, Leib Frumkin. Rabbi Leib Frumkin was a Talmud Chochem um, who settled in Eretz Yisrael. He founded the city of Petah Tikva, and he tried to get people to settle in Eretz Yisrael. That's kind of the first type of Eretz Yisrael, uh, you know, settlers. He put out Reb, Sadi, Reb, uh, Reb Amram Goyen's sitter with, with, with Horace, whatever. So he came to Reb Salante, he wanted to get Reb Salante on his bandwagon. And he writes, I asked Rabbi Salanta, for a person who's decided to leave Russia and emigrate, should he go to America or should he go to Israel? He said, I didn't expect a reaction. He said, Rabbi Yisrael Salanta's forehead became creased. And he began, you could see his mind working furiously. And he began walking back and forth and thinking and agonizing, agonizing. Finally, he sits down and he says, America. So he said, I was a little shocked, and he asked, does the Rebbe think that they'll stay from in America? He says, highly doubtful. What about it's Israel? I said, probably. So he says, I don't understand, I don't understand you. So why not at Israel? He said, in at Israel, there's absolutely no way to make Parnassah. He said, the Muslims are not buying anything from the Jews, and there's nothing a Jew can do there to make a living. He said, I don't think it's right to, 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 to paint a, 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 a bright picture of Eretz Yisrael and have a person come after three months deplete his last penny of savings and then leave him penniless. He says, there is no end to the terrible things a person will do if he doesn't have money. He said, in America, he has a freedom of choice. He can choose. There are a lot of Yitzharas, but at least he's a Baal Bechira. He said, Aeneas has a terrible effect on a person, and I'm wary of it. And so, Frumke said, that's exactly what I came for. I'm looking to establish that Rabbonim and Gvirim should get together and make places of Parnassus and so on and so forth. And if I do that, will you be behind it? He said, absolutely. But the understanding that 
you need, it, you, you can't just send a person's, it, it, you have to worry about a person's gashmias. And the understanding of the terrible toll poverty takes on people, that was part of Rabbi Yisrael's uh, extraordinary breadth of understanding and feeling and, and so on. Al Kaponim, his life didn't end there. In, in, he left Kovna abruptly in, after about eight or nine years and he went to Germany. And in Germany, he started doing um, a lot of activities. Germany was gone and people were shocked. He went to Königsberg and Memel, those, those are the two main cities that he was at in Germany. He learned German, he learned how to speak in German, he, he dressed well, he, he, he really, and he went and he made, again, he spoke about Batim, he went to universities and got students together, spoke for them, taught them. He tried to get universities to teach Gemara so that the Jewish students would feel proud about Gemara. Um, he, he had many, many activities. He once sent one of his Talmudim, one of his prized Talmudim, to learn to become a doctor so that the students would have an example of someone who's a big Yerushalmi and a doctor. Unfortunately, that student became Fry, and we saw his very mitzvah. But we saw that a very big picture of things. And his, and his sense in Germany, um, he worked very, very hard to get, um, to try to revitalize Judaism in Germany. There, somebody once asked him, he was criticized in the press, even the Freie press, the Maskilim said, how do you leave over the Jews in Russia and run to Germany? And he told somebody a marshal, he said, and it's a very, very fascinating marshal because it's, it's, it's so true. He says, when somebody is driving a horse and wagon, they sometimes get crazy and they start galloping downhill, just stump. He said, if you try to rein them in as they're galloping downhill, they will overturn everything and you'll be killed and they'll be killed. He said, you need to hold on tight until it gets to the bottom of the hill and they're exhausted and then slowly you can inch them up the hill again. He said, the jury in, in Russia and Lita are galloping downhill. There's no way to really hold them in. In Germany, they're at the bottom. They've spent their energy. And now it's possible to start inching them uphill. It's, 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 it's possibly one of the reasons why the movement started in the 70s rather than earlier, because it didn't start with the generation that was half from. It started with a generation that was totally gone. And sometimes it's easier when a person still has the Itzahar in front of him to go someplace. It's, it's much harder to restrain than if a person is at the bottom and you, and you ask him, is the bottom as nice as you thought that you needed to run there? And the person says, no, there's nothing here. And you can slowly coax him uphill. It, it's counterintuitive, but, but it's, it's true. His final two or three years of his life, he ended up in Paris. Paris, as bad as the matzah was in Germany, Paris was much worse. In Paris, the Jews were basically assimilated out. He was in Paris, and he made tremendous efforts to, he wanted to translate the Talmud into French. He tried to get somebody to do it. He wanted to write a dictionary. Um, he, 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 he went around and tried to get Chashmah to settle in France and to be mashpia on, on Talmidim and so on. It's, it's, it wasn't, I mean, there are some stories about success. It wasn't all that successful in France. 
And one morning he said, he, he, had a, he, fell, he fell down a flight of steps, and he wrote a letter and he said that um, he, if he would have been a shluch of mitzvah, he wouldn't be nizik. He, he feels that he's not a real shluch mitzvah. And then he packed up and he left Paris. They asked him why, and he said it's not good to die in Paris. In France there's a law that graves are only for a certain kufa. You have to rebuy the grave, and if there's no ground to rebuy it, they, they take out the bones and burn them or get rid of them. It's still out of Yomazet, they do it. Um, so he left, he went back to Kenningsburg, and he died a few months later. That was in 1883 uh, or thereabouts. Al the, 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 um, in at the core of what he accomplished for Lithuanian Jewry, who is best in our Messiahs, the Messiahs of all of us, our yeshivas. His Talmidim were the ones that carried it out before, but the things that he brought in was that a passionless Yiddishkeit is, is, is dead and waiting to disintegrate. It's not going to do it for you. You need to look for things, you need to focus on things that will bring out a passion. And learning Musa be Slavos, be Spilos, is what's is the key to it. A person needs to understand himself and understand that there are many layers of person active, and that and 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 never to feel since if he's doing everything right and he's wonderful that he's good and wonderful. Because there's so much more underneath the surface. A person needs a lot of chachma and insight to that. A person needs to conduct himself. Uh, uh, he, Rabbi Yisrael Salanta took things that he felt were appropriate. In other words, there wasn't a reaction that if the, has, if the masculum say X is right, then it must be wrong. Organization, cleanliness, um, bearing, language, all of these things were important. And they played themselves out later in Kelm and other places that this is the way a person should go. A Bentaira needs to be given the ability to hold himself, to hold his head high, not to be supported in a demeaning way and not to be a shmata. needs to carry himself like a Bentaira and, and people should address it that way. The greatest part of, he, he felt that the Chelek Torah that people neglect the most has been Adam Haveri. And especially in Europe and especially in Lita, people were very sensitive about COVID. People didn't have money, didn't have many tanugim, so covet was a big issue. And the interplay of egos was difficult. And Rabbi Yisrael felt that that's a neglected part of Torah, and he pushed very hard for Ben Chaver and Chachmet, <coughs> all these in Yanim. His final, I guess, a final picture of him by his Ptira is probably the best summation of the person. As he was dying, he was alone with a male nurse, of Pashtayid. And and Rasul recognized that that person is superstitious, this and that. And Rasul turned to him and he spent his last um, few minutes and last breath explaining to the person that a dead body is nothing, it doesn't harm anybody, it's nothing to be afraid of, there's no, there's no this, there's no that, it's, you know, and so on, to put him at ease. And that was, that was what he died with. Um, the understanding that even when a person is dying, it's, you know, yes, be, he's, he, the Yom Adini is standing for and so on and so forth is one thing, but there's another person in the room who's going to be sitting on Spilkis, sort of, uh, 
you know, kind of spooked out. And he needs to put him at ease. That's, that's his last thing he did was some Yonah Haveri. So it's, it's not Bechdiyah that, that he's always in Pashat Mishpatim, so as Yotzeh comes out, there's certain things, big things about Ashkacha. Um, that was the, the Dmus that Rishos Lanta was. He, he left, he did so much and was involved in so many communities. Everything was hidden, everything was quiet. We barely know about somebody who for basically created the framework for, for the Hemshech of the any Yiddishkeit. The little we know is, is, is a strap in a bucket. And, um, and, and, and we see his maizim through the maizim of his talmidim, his talmidim, talmidim, that basically gave us back the Torah, to, that, that gave us the Torah that we have today in, in the Lutheran world. Thank you.